This reading is Ezra 5. Now Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the prophet, a descendant of Edu, prophesied to the Jews in Judea and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel, who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, son of Josedek, set to work to rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, helping them. At that time, Tataniah, governor of Trans-Euphrates, and Shethar, Bozani, and their associates went to them and asked, Who authorized you to rebuild this temple and restore this structure? They also asked, What are the names of the men constructing this building? But the eye of their God was watching over the elders of the Jews, and they were not stopped until a report could go to Darius and his written reply be received. This is a copy of the letter that Tataniah, governor of Trans-Euphrates, and Shethar Botsanai and their associates, the officials of Trans-Euphrates, sent to King Darius. The report they sent him read as follows. To King Darius, cordial greetings. The king should know that we went to the district of Judah, to the temple of the great God. The people are building it with large stones and placing the timbers in the walls. The work is being carried on with diligence and is making rapid progress under their direction. We questioned the elders and asked them, Who authorised you to rebuild this temple and restore this structure? We also asked their names so that we could write down the names of their leaders for your information. This is the answer they gave us. We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth. And we are rebuilding the temple that was built many years ago, one that a great king of Israel built and finished. But because our fathers angered the God of heaven, he handed them over to Nebuchadnezzar, the Chaldean king of Babylon, who destroyed this temple and deported the people to Babylon. However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, King Cyrus issued a decree to rebuild this house of God. He even removed from the temple of Babylon the gold and silver articles of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple in Jerusalem and brought to the temple in Babylon. Then King Cyrus gave them to a man named Sheshbazar, whom he had appointed governor, and he told him, Take these articles and go and deposit them in the temple in Jerusalem and rebuild the house of God on its site. So this Sheshbazar came and laid the foundations of the house of God in Jerusalem. From that day to the present, it has been under construction, but is not yet finished. Now if it pleases the king, let a search be made in the royal archives of Babylon to see if King Cyrus did in fact issue a decree to rebuild this house of God in Jerusalem. Then let the king send us his decision in this matter. This is the word of the Lord. Well, carrying on with our reading from Ezra 6. King Darius then issued an order, and they searched in the archives stored in the treasury at Babylon. A scroll was found in the citadel of Ecbatana in the province of Media, and this was written on it. Memorandum. In the first year of King Cyrus, The king issued a decree concerning the temple of God in Jerusalem. Let the temple be rebuilt as a place to present sacrifices, 
and let its foundations be laid. It is to be 90 feet high and 90 feet wide, with three courses of large stones and one of timbers. The costs are to be paid by the royal treasury. Also, the gold and silver articles of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took from the temple in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, are to be returned to their places in the temple in Jerusalem. They are to be deposited in the house of God. Now then, Tatani, governor of Trans-Euphrates, and Shethar-Bosani and you, their fellow officials of that province, stay away from there. Do not interfere with the work on this temple of God. Let the governor of the Jews and the Jewish elders rebuild this house of God on its site. Moreover, I hereby decree what you are to do for these elders of the Jews in the construction of the house of God. The expenses of these men are to be fully paid out of the royal treasury from the revenues of Trans-Euphrates, so that the work will not stop. Whatever is needed, young bulls, rams, male lambs for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, and wheat, salt, wine, and oil, as requested by the priests in Jerusalem, must be given them daily without fail, so that they may offer sacrifices pleasing to the God of heaven, and pray for the well-being of the king and his sons. Furthermore, I decree that if anyone changes this edict, a beam is to be pulled from his house, and he is to be lifted up and impaled on it. And for this crime, his house is to be made a pile of rubble. May God, who has caused his name to dwell there, overthrow any king or people who lifts a hand to change this decree or to destroy this temple in Jerusalem. I, Darius, have decreed it. Let it be carried out with diligence. Then, because of the decree King Darius had sent, Tatani, governor of Trans-Euphrates, and Shethar-Bosani and their associates carried it out with diligence. So the elders of the Jews continued to build and prosper under the preaching of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah, a descendant of Ido. They finished building the temple according to the command of the God of Israel and the decrees of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, kings of Persia. The temple was completed on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. Then the people of Israel, the priests, the Levites and the rest of the exiles celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy. For the dedication of this house of God they offered a hundred bulls, two hundred rams, four hundred male lambs and as a sin offering for all Israel, twelve male goats one for each of the tribes of Israel. And they installed the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their groups for the service of God at Jerusalem, according to what is written in the book of Moses. On the 14th day of the first month, the exiles celebrated the Passover. The priests and Levites had purified themselves and were all ceremonially clean. The Levites slaughtered the Passover lamb for the exiles, for their brothers the priests, and for themselves. So the Israelites who had returned from the exile ate it, together with all who had separated themselves from the unclean practices of their Gentile neighbours in order to seek the Lord, the God of Israel. For seven days they celebrated with joy the Feast of Unleavened Bread, because the Lord had filled them with joy by changing the attitude of the king of Assyria, so that he assisted them in the work on the house of God, the God of Israel. This is the word of the Lord.
Thank you, Kerry and Mel, for those readings. My name's Joel. I'm the minister here at St. Stephen's. And uh, before we have a look at these words, I'm just going to give two quick notices. Uh, the first one is to remind people that the Men's Trivia Night is coming up uh, this, this coming Saturday, 7.30pm at Queens Road Chapel. Uh, I'm sure it'll be a great night and a great chance to uh, spend some time together in, in fellowship. The second notice I have uh, is regarding Marge Scott. Uh, Marge Scott was a, a long-time member of St. Stephen's, and sadly she passed away on uh, Tuesday. She returned to be with the Lord at the incredible age of 99 years old. Uh, she was a, a faithful woman. She, uh, I'm told she worked as our church administrator in the 1960s and 70s for, for almost a decade, and she also did some work for CMS. And many people here will, will remember her fondly. Uh, now, the, the family has indicated that there won't be a, a funeral for Marge, but uh, we're going to just spend some time in, in prayer now, giving thanks uh, for her life uh, and, and for the fact that she's now with her Father in heaven. So please uh, join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, so much for the life of our sister Marge Scott. Father, thank you for her saving faith in you uh, and for the confidence uh, that she had uh, that she will one day return to be with you. And we thank you that that time has now come. Uh, Father, we pray particularly for her friends and family who uh, are grieving at this time. Please, please would you comfort them. Uh, please would you be with them and remind them of your presence. Father, we, we do thank you um, for, for her faithfulness in, in many ways uh, as a, a servant of you. And I uh, thank you for the ways that uh, we, we've heard about that and uh, that many other people will have, have witnessed uh, over her 99 years of life. Uh, so we, we thank you for her life, Lord, and uh, we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't we uh, pray again uh, as we have a look at these words. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the, the truth of Scripture. And Father, we thank you that uh, there are some wonderful truths in this passage today. Father, we know that sometimes our, our circumstances uh, Make it, make it hard for us to uh, believe those truths and, and to trust you. And so we pray you'd be working in our hearts and that you would help us all this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. My wife, uh, Lilia, recently took our daughter, Sophia, to, to see a friend's puppies. And uh, the puppies were uh, Labradoodles. And Sophia was, was very nervous at first. She kind of would, would tense up when, when the puppies got too close and then she'd try and crawl away. Uh, but after some time and, and some words of reassurance, Sophia was able to, to sort of sit there and, and watch them. And at one stage she even managed to kind of pat one of them while, while looking away. <laughs> now, I imagine for her there, there was something reassuring about knowing uh, she was under the, the watchful eye of, of someone who loves her. Uh, and we see that with kids all the time, don't we? They're often more at ease when a loved one is around. And I have no doubt that's what helped Sophia to gradually become more and more comfortable facing the hostility of these cute little puppies. Now, knowing we're under the watchful eye of, of someone who loves us and, and cares for us deeply makes a big difference. And that's one of the things we're reassured of in, in the passage this morning. You see it particularly in, in chapter 5, verse 5. Our God is a God who watches over his people, who has a plan for his people. And as we go through the passage, I, I hope it will be an encouragement to each of us, particularly 
because this is something that we need to be reminded of from time to time. It's been a couple of weeks since we were last in the book of Ezra, and we've been we've uh, the beginning of this remarkable we've seen the beginning of this remarkable restoration of the people of God. Many of them had been taken captive and were living as exiles in a foreign land, but the book of Ezra began with a decree to allow God's people to return home to Jerusalem and to begin rebuilding the temple of God, a temple that had been destroyed when they were taken captive, a temple that was significant because it symbolized the presence of God among his people. And that's what made things, and what made things remarkable was the fact that the king at the time, Cyrus, the most powerful king around, he was the one who was giving the orders. God had moved his heart to issue this decree, as we heard in the reading. The people returned and the rebuild began. But when the enemies of God's people heard about this, they, they sought to discourage them and, and force them to stop the rebuild. And the last time we were together, we saw that the, the rebuild came to a halt for about 15 years. And, and that's where we, we left off. Now we're looking at a, a fairly big passage this morning, two chapters, but we'll look at it in, in four part. And I've got four C's for us. Four C's. Now, it sounds a little bit like my exam results. Uh, firstly, there's the command, then the challenge, then the counter, and finally the celebration. So the first two C's are in, in chapter 5 and the second two are in chapter 6. So firstly, there is a command. E.F. Hutton was, was one of the larger stock brokerage firms in the 1900s in America. Some, some Americans here might, might know of them. And they used to have these ads on TV, and, and you can still find them on YouTube. And they made a number of these ads. Now, in one of them, there, there are two businessmen having a meal at a busy restaurant. And the first guy says to the other, my broker says it's a really good buy. What does your broker say? And the other guy replies, well, my broker is E.F. Hutton. And Hutton says, and as soon as he mentions the name E.F. Hutton, the, the whole restaurant freezes. You could hear a pin drop, people stop eating, waiters stop serving, and everyone leans in to hear what E.F. Hutton has to say. And then the, the punchline comes on. When E.F. Hutton talks, people listen. Uh, and it's that kind of impact, uh, sorry, they had a number of those ads uh, that they put out over the years. When E.F. Hutton talks, people listen. And it's that kind of impact that the prophets were to have over the people of God. When they spoke, the people were to listen. Theirs was a message from God. Uh, it's not a message that they've conjured up themselves, and that's why the rebuild, after, after stalling for many years, finally resumes. Uh, and I've called the, the first C a command because their words stir up the leaders and the people into action. Now Haggai and, and Zechariah both prophesy to the people. You can read some of what they prophesy in those books, Haggai and, and Zechariah, and they emphasize slightly different aspects of, of what happened. They offer a slightly more critical take on why the rebuild stalled. But we're not going to look at them this morning, one for the sake of time, but also because we're interested in, in what Ezra has to show us. And, and he presents things in a, more, a slightly more positive way. And I think it's because he's less focused on the, on the people at this stage and more focused on what God is doing in the bigger picture. So Ezra tells us that they prophesy, 
And when the prophet speaks, the people listen. That's what happens, and so the rebuild is back on track. Now, in some ways, the, the same thing is true today as well. The prophet speaks, and the people listen. And we know from the, the book of Hebrews that the prophet-like figure who God now speaks through is his son. The very first verse of the book of Hebrews. In the past, God spoke, spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. We know the will of God as we look to his son. That's how God primarily speaks. And I say that because I sometimes get the feeling that we as Christians act as though Jesus is not enough, like we need more in life, as if the Son of God isn't enough to save us and to sustain us and to help us through this life. I remember soon after I became a Christian having that exact feeling, wanting someone to give me a more specific word about my life, which seemed a lot more exciting than the word of God did at the time. At times we need to be reminded not to reject Jesus or, or replace Jesus. He is the one whom God has spoken through. He is the one who has authority, the one who is worth listening to. So that's the first C, the command through the prophets. Uh, the second C is the challenge. Now when the, the people of God listen to him, opposition is never far away. And we, we saw that in chapter 4. Uh, you might have seen Bethlehem College in Tauranga has, has been in the news this week. And there's been a couple of reasons, but one thing that caught my eye was that it's a, a Christian school being slammed for holding biblical views around marriage and gender. A, a Christian school. A, a school where people go, knowing the beliefs that the school holds to. Such are the times uh, that we live in. Faithfulness to God will bring challenges in life. For God's people as a whole and, and also on an individual level. It's happened already in Ezra, and now it happens again. Uh, verse 3, Tadanai the governor and Shethar Bozanai, I'll, I'll call him SB, and, and some other officials notice that work has started again, and they challenge the people of God by asking who authorised it. And they even ask for the, the names of the people who are working, which, which seems pretty petty. And they write to King Darius, challenging what is being done. But this challenge provides an opportunity for God's people. They get a chance to testify about God's work in their lives. And that's one of the, the benefits when our faith is challenged. It can give us a chance to reflect on what God has done. It gives us clarity and conviction so we can share it with others. It's, it's a warts and all testimony here. They tell the officials ex exactly what's happened. They don't just include the good parts. They include the parts of, in their history which they're less proud of, including the reason for their exile. They don't try and hide anything. They own their past mistakes. And it's clear that they, they're, they're concerned with God's glory rather than making themselves uh, look good to those who are opposed to them. Now there's every possibility they could suffer for it. Are we as open about the God whom we follow and serve? If we are challenged by a family member or a colleague or a friend, do, do we testify faithfully of God's grace towards us? Or is, is preserving our image more important than the glory of God? The people of God are, are asked a question and they give a, a wonderful testimony. 
Uh, they say this to begin with. We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth. Uh, and they explain that they're, they're following the orders of King Cyrus from years before. Now the challenge ends with the governor and his sidekicks asking the king for a search of the royal archives and, and to see for himself if anything that the people of God have said is true. And I think they're, they're pretty confident at this point they'll be able to put a stop to this rebuild and, and punish those responsible. So that's the, the challenge that comes. Uh, we're into chapter 6 now and the third C is, is the counter. Uh, one of the greatest sports out there is the unpredictable and completely unstaged sport of professional wrestling. And in some of the, the great wrestling matches, uh, one of the wrestlers will be heading for a, a certain defeat, only to somehow counter their opponent and end up with a victory. Now, maybe it's not a complete surprise to some, uh, but we do see a, a surprising counter in these next verses. King Darius does exactly as he's been asked, but what he finds flips the request on its head. The people of God are found to have been doing exactly what they had been told by King Cyrus, which is not a surprise to us. So, so rather than ordering the work to be stopped, King Darius orders Tatanai and, and SB and, and the other officials to stay out of the way. But what's more, he orders that the costs of the rebuild come from the royal treasury, uh, just as Cyrus had done before him. So the governor and the officials are, are going to pay the costs of the rebuild. There's even more in verse 11. Uh, and there was a few gasps as, as this was read. If anyone changes this edict, a, a beam is to be pulled from his house and he is to be lifted up and impaled on it. And for his crime, his house is to be made a, a pile of rubble. King Darius, he future-proofs the rebuild. So, so that's the, the counter. So we've had the, the command, the challenge, the counter, and, and finally, the celebration. That's the last C. The people of Israel continue the rebuild and they prosper under the preaching of Haggai and Zechariah. And in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius, the temple is finally completed. Uh, I know a number of university students have exams and assignments at the moment and they're hanging out for a moment like this where, where months and or even years of hard work finally pay off. When the time to celebrate finally arrives. That moment is here for Israel and, and celebrate they do. And there are three celebrations described in the passage. Uh, first, it's the dedication of the house of God with all these sacrifices. Now, if you think that's a lot, you should know how many sacrifices there were when the, first, the, the original temple uh, was finished. 22,000 cattle and 120,000 sheep and goats. That's what a big sacrifice looks like. And that was needed to make the people right before God, to atone for their sin, to purify them. Now next, they celebrate the Passover. And you can read more detail of the Passover in, in Exodus 12 if you'd like, but briefly, this was when God rescued his people uh, in Egypt. They, they, they put the blood of a lamb on the doorposts, and when the Egyptians were struck down by God, God's people was spared from his wrath. The Passover points us to a time when God would save his people from judgment for all eternity. Uh, and we're going to be reminded of that when we share communion later in the service. We remember the blood of the lamb, Jesus, shed for our sin. 
sparing us from the judgment that each of us deserves. Now the final thing that they celebrate is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And we're told they celebrated this feast specifically because of what God did in changing the attitude of the king. So the temple is finished. Uh, It's a huge moment for them. But as we read uh, uh, of the reaction, we know that this would be the last time that this wouldn't be the last time that people would celebrate the temple of God being restored. See, when Jesus arrives years later, remember what he says. Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. But of course, he's not referring to the physical temple. He's referring to the temple that is his body. Jesus is the, the new and true temple, superseding the old one. And now we come directly to him to worship the one true God. Uh, That's what we celebrate every Easter Sunday, the the fact that Jesus' words became reality and that he was raised from the dead. I want to point to one main thing that stands out in the passage, Uh, and it flows from chapter 5, verse 5. And it's one aspect of of God's character that we see throughout the passage and, and elsewhere in Scripture. He is the God who watches over his people. Like a a shepherd with his sheep, he he speaks through the prophets, he guards the leaders in the rebuild, he provides the funding through those opposed to the rebuild. Uh, He emboldens the people to testify faithfully and he ensures that the rebuild of the temple is completed, giving his people reason to celebrate. What a difference it makes having the eye of the Lord watching over you. Knowing that God doesn't just kind of scroll through our lives on the, on the lookout for what's most interesting, but that he sees everything and that he takes an interest in, in every aspect of our lives. We're not a means of distraction for him or a, a source of entertainment. More than that, he sees what we don't. And it's good to know the one watching over us has, has plans for our lives and shapes us for our good even when we don't see it. To know God is at work in in the big things in life, but also that he is the one who keeps his eye on each and every one of us. These two chapters have have reminded God's people of this truth for generations and generations. When we seek to live for God, we, we know it won't be easy. Knowing God is watching over us helps us through difficulties and, and discouragements. God knows about your hard week about that impossible person you're dealing with. He sees your grief. He sees your disappointment, your feelings of betrayal. Ezra shows us that God sees his people. More than that, he is working out his plans for their ultimate good. And I think this is the bit that can be hardest for us to believe. Because sometimes it's hard for us to fathom how God could use some of the things that we go through in life for our good. Some of the things we face in life are are plain horrible. The pain, the sadness, the setbacks, times of waiting and wondering uh, when it will get better. Times where those we rely on let us down. Ezra 5 and 6 would have us know this. Don't lose heart because our God sees his people. He sees you. He has a plan. He is working in ways that we often don't see. 
And his plans cannot be stopped by, by anyone or anything. We understand that, understand that in part now, but one day we will understand more fully. Uh, I want to close with these words from Martin Luther, the, the famous reformer. If we consider the greatness and the glory of the life we shall have when we have risen from the dead, it would not be difficult at all for us to bear the concerns of this world. If I believe the word, I shall on the last day, after the sentence has been pronounced, not only gladly have suffered ordinary temptations, insults and imprisonment, but I shall also say, oh, that I did not throw myself under the feet of all the godless for the sake of the great glory which I now see revealed and which has come to me through the merit of Christ. Our God is, is watching over us and, and if we trust in Jesus one, to, one day, uh, we will be with him in glory. May God keep us in him until that day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the God who sees us. Father, thank you that you are with us uh, and that you have plans for us. Father, we, help, uh, we pray that you would help us to trust you with those plans, particularly at times where, where we know that's hard. Father, thank you that you continue to watch over us. Please help us to, to keep trusting in you, in Jesus' name. Amen.